Our subject today from Luke chapter 17 is the subject of the fellowship of serving. The fellowship of serving. We're in a relationship in which we serve or are to serve one another. And the first thing as you look at your bulletin outline there is I want you to consider God's axiom. It's an axiomatic truth. Here it is. The more a per- this is from Christ. The more a person serves others, the greater that person is in the sight of God. Now, people look at that and they scratch their head and say, can that be right? Is that exactly what Jesus is teaching? Yes, it is, and we'll see these scriptures momentarily. But I want you to observe that one of the things about God that the world is rather ignorant of is the way that God thinks. Granted, there is mystery to God. There will always be mystery. And if there were no mystery, uh, the person or persons who figured God out would suddenly replace God by their own intellect. So there will always be mystery. And when people think that they can figure God out, it's where they, where they end up as either atheists or agnostics. Indeed, this is in fact the problem. The comedian Bill Mayer believes that he has figured out that there is no God, there can never be a God, there will never, he will never have to give an account to God because God from his viewpoint, does not exist. His arrogance exudes from his personality whenever he is being interviewed. Yet almost every accusation he makes against Christ and Christianity is a mouthful of total ignorance. He thinks he knows us. He thinks he knows the Christ that we recommend in the gospel. He doesn't know either. The wise man Solomon had these same kind of people in his day. And he writes about them in the book of Proverbs. Let me read some of Solomon, who's noted as the wisest of all men, apart from Christ. And here's what he writes. The way of a fool seems right to him. But a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 12, verse 15. Or again. Every prudent man acts out of knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. Proverbs 13, verse 16. A wise man fears the Lord and shuns evil, but a fool is hot-headed and reckless. Proverbs 14, verse 16. Or again, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools gushes folly. Proverbs 15, verse 2. A fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions. Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool's lips bring him strife, and his mouth invites a beating. (laughs) Which would tell you what they did in Solomon's days to fools. Proverbs 18, verse 6. Or again, a fool's mouth is his undoing. In his lips are a snare to his soul. Proverbs 18, verse 7. And I was just thinking of another one as I was reading. Even a fool is considered wise 
if he keeps his mouth shut. <laughs> Solomon is talking about the people of his day who speak foolishly about God and God's people because they do not know God and they do not know the way God thinks. Now you see a pattern here in Solomon's writings? The fool is one who is self-righteous, who is self-made and independent of others. He is self-centered and preoccupied with his own thinking, yet his thinking is skewed because he is a hothead and reckless. He avoids knowledge and he distorts the facts. He loves to air his own opinions to anyone who will hear him. But the wise recognize that his thoughts are exposed folly. If he'd just keep his mouth shut, he wouldn't look like a fool. But he can't do that. That's part of his folly. Well, I ask the question, what kind of a fool is Solomon talking about here? The answer he gives for us in Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So the fool of Solomon's writing is the person who spurns wisdom and knowledge, though he thinks he's an intellectual. What's the source of wisdom and knowledge? Again, Solomon answers Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Do you know that starting points, brethren, starting points are very important when it comes to knowledge. Starting points are your assumptions. We all have them. We do, but all assumptions cannot be right. Some assumptions are wrong. And I might say here that our assumptions are blighted by the fall along with any of our other faculties. So you cannot assume that your assumptions are correct. If you start out on the correct assumption, if, if, you will likely end up with truth. But if you begin with a wrong assumption, your end conclusion will be incorrect because your biases or assumptions flavor the outcome. For example, if like Bill Maher, you assume there is no God, then all the created world will be colored by that assumption. People will believe in, who believe in God will be viewed as stupid. I've heard him actually say that. They will, evidence, they will look at the evidence of creation and it will be dismissed in favor of impersonal evolution. He calls creation kitty stories. Morality will be defined in terms of so societal preferences, for example, on the abortion issue. In the abortion issue, the assumption is that life does not begin until sometime after conception. Yet that is disputed by true science. 
So they go against actual scientific fact in order to keep their wicked assumption. Because they know that if we ever did consider that conceived child to be a human being from the moment of conception, it would have a devastating effect on the abortion industry. Now, here's my question. Does anyone ever cross the line in the spiritual dimension by ignoring or overriding his or her assumptions or biases and opt instead for the truth of God? That's the question. Let me ask it a different way. Can a non-believer become a believer simply by presenting Bible facts to him or her? The answer is never, not in a million years, will that ever happen. Why not? Because the bias of men's hearts always interprets the data according to the prejudice. Bill Mayer, I can say it confidently, Bill Mayer cannot think objectively about God and the gospel. Cannot think objectively. Why not? Because his assumptions are that God does not exist and anyone who believes that he does is stupid and ignorant and not worth the time of day. That's why not. In other words, his contempt skews the data. King David tells us what the problem is. He says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. Psalm 14, verse 1. What is David saying? He's saying, well, it's a heart issue, folks. It's a heart issue. This is where your deep-seated thoughts are formed. The heart in Scripture stands for the center of your thoughts. Paul words it this way in Romans chapter 8. Those who live, who live according to the sinful nature have their, listen to the way he words it, have their minds set on what that nature desires. We've all heard it. People say, my mind's made up. My mind's made up. And Paul says, yeah, I know your mind's made up. And your mind is made up on what your sinful nature desires. He goes on. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind, get it now, is hostile to God. That's where people are. He goes on, it gets worse. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. 
those controlled by the sinful nature cannot, cannot please God. Romans 8, 5 through 8. And this is one of the clearest evidences that we have of a biased heart and a biased heart that will not and cannot cross the line of its evil assumptions about God and the gospel. You can present all the Bible facts you want. They will not make a dent in the hostile thinking of the unbelieving because the mind of the sinful man is death. It is set on a course of destruction. Okay? This is where you say, wow, this is pretty terrible. Yeah. Dead in trespasses and sins means you're dead towards God. That's where you're at. So what are we going to do? We're going to pump some life juice into you. No, we're not. <laughs> you're dead. Well, I'll hold some Bible verses up. Well, I'll teach you the gospel. And that will change you. No, it won't. It won't. So we ask the question, how then are people saved? That's a fair question. This is pretty I mean, they're a pretty desperate situation. We're going to ask again, how, how do they ever become believers in God when the bias of their hearts is unbelief and skepticism and ridicule and mockery? And you've all heard it with regard to the gospel and, and with regard to Jesus Christ. How's all of that going to change? Well, they have to get a new heart. They have to get a new nature. Okay, where's a sinner? Where's a sinner who hates God going to get a new heart? Is he going to go through some means of self-reformation? Is he going to find faith in a dead heart, faith in God? Is he going to find repentance in a dead heart that's dead towards God? Because that's one of the commands of Scripture, you see, repent and believe. Those are commands of, are they going to opt for the commands of God? Think about it. Where is he going to get a new heart? Oh, and another thing, he doesn't think he needs a new heart. They don't think they need a new heart. They think their thinking is just fine the way it is. And they think, if you just give me the data, then I can decide for myself, pros, cons, and I can make a, an intelligent, favorable decision. Well, it will be an ignorant and unfavorable decision, but they can do that. And indeed, all sinners can do that. Where are they going to get a new heart? God says... I'm reading scripture. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, a calcified heart, you see, that has no heartbeat for God, no heartbeat for godliness. I will take that out and give you a heart of flesh a living, beating heart. Now notice the next phrase. And I will put my spirit in you. That's Romans 8. And here it is. Move you to follow 
my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. A calcified, stony heart is a dead heart. Don't say, no, I, I, I feel it beating. I'm alive. The blood's flowing. I'm thinking. I'm laughing. I'm enjoying life. But it's a stone towards God. One year when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, I received a long-distance phone call from my father in Pennsylvania. Moody's in Chicago. And he said, Fred, you have to catch the next plane and come home. I said, whoa, 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 what, what, Dad? What's going on? He says, your mother's in the hospital, and uh, she is in trouble with her kidneys. And we need you home here so that my dad was in business for himself, so he couldn't be there 24-7 at the hospital. He says, I need you to help take shifts so that we can care for mom. In this. So I got on a plane, went home, so forth. We got to talk to Dr. And we said, what's wrong, Doc? And the doctor says, your mother's kidney is calcified. I said, what does that mean? He says, it's dead. It's like a stone in there. It's not functioning. Is it cancerous? No, it's not functioning. Is there any way to get it to function? No, it's calcified. Well, what's the procedure? We're going to have to cut it out. Now, they were doing kidney transplants back, back then, but they were a bit rare. But he says, no worry. She, everyone has two kidneys. So the second kidney will just take over for this one. I said, well, then why... Why won't we just leave that alone instead of putting her through kidney surgery, by the way, in case you've never had one of those. <laughs> Pretty extensive. They literally cut you in half. Isn't this wonderful? This is uh, <laughs> our, our uh, physiology class for this morning. But anyway, uh, he says, no, we can't leave it in there. It'll go gangrene, and then she'll have all kinds of poison problems that will affect the rest of the body and so forth. It's got to come out. And I thought about that in reference to what God says in Ezekiel here. A calcified heart is a heart of stone. There's no life to it, and it'll kill you, folks. Unless you get a new heart, that stone will take you right into the depths of the sea and drown you into the depths of hell forever. It is not a minor issue. And when he says that he'll put his spirit within us to move us to follow his decrees, to be careful to keep his laws. This is God's spirit, that same creator's spirit that moved upon the formless void of creation's dawn and brought substance to it. Likewise, Paul says, you, however, are controlled not by the spirit of uh, the sinful nature, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life, there's your new heart, to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Romans 8, verse 9 and following. With a new heart comes new thinking. 
Jesus said of the old heart, our old heart, here's what he said. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Matthew 15, verse 19. You say, okay, yeah, that was me. But what happens when a person is given a new heart? Paul writes, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. Romans 10, verse 8. In other words, you're given a heart to believe. Okay, the question comes then. Which comes first? Faith and repentance, new heart. Or, new heart, faith and repentance. Faith and repentance is obedience to Christ, isn't it? We're commanded to believe, we're commanded to repent. Then we read, the natural man cannot, cannot obey the commands of God. The scenario is new heart, faith and repentance. Let me read it for you. Luke writing the history of the book of Acts says of Lydia. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. She's out at the, along the riverbank listening to the preaching of Paul. She was a worshiper of God, which just means she was religious. That's all that means. She was a worshiper of God. Next phrase. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Acts 16, verse 14. Faith is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. And if He don't give the gift, if He doesn't give you a new heart, you won't find it there. Now I've said all that to say this. God's thinking is foreign to anything and everything we as sinners think. And so this principle that we're looking at, the more a person serves others, the greater the person is, is so foreign to the natural way a sinner would think that it meets with resistance and rejection. No one in the world thinks of servants as being greater than those who rule. No one would say, oh, I want to be a servant. I want to be a servant. And that is why everyone is vying to become top dog. Early on, even the disciples had skewed thinking in this matter. The very night Jesus was condemned to death and betrayed by Judas, we are told, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. This very night, you know. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Luke 22, verse 24 through 26. 
axiom is true from God's viewpoint. Those he considers to be great are those that serve others, not those that crack the whip and rule over others with an iron fist. That brings us to the second point, that Jesus is the master. Just take that word by itself. Master, yeah, but now put it together. He's the master servant. The disciples were always looking for their moment to shine. (laughs) Recognition was very important to them. James and John even went to the extreme measure of putting their mother up to petitioning Jesus for a special honor on their behalf. The scripture says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left, in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? You know from scripture that he's talking about his suffering and his death. We can, they answered. Bring it on, Jesus. Anything you can do, we can do better. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup. But as to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Matthew 20, verse 20 through 24. Now this was unquestionably a power move on the part of James and John. They wanted to get their dibs in early for the prominent seats in the future kingdom of God. Their mother was brought in, I think, um, to soften the request and make it more palatable. I mean, think about it. Would Jesus deny a loving mother such an innocent request? Well, it wasn't so innocent. The favor, as she put it, was an attempt to position James and John in the place of preeminent authority and privilege right next to Christ on His throne. And when the remaining disciples got wind of it, the text says they were indignant with the two brothers. Indignant most likely because they hadn't thought of it first. (laughs) James and John beat them to the punch. None None of these disciples were free from the love of power. You know, that's what runs Washington, D.C., Men that attract people to the office in the Congress. It's not the money. It isn't. Most of these guys are successful lawyers or could be. It's the power to rule over others. This is the world. 
But it must not be the church. It must not be you. It must not be me. Now, it isn't that James and John were bad guys. James was beheaded by Herod, wicked Herod, for his faith. He was beheaded to please the Jews of the day. And John was the only disciple that came back to the foot of the cross with the women and stood there when all the other disciples had fled in terror. They weren't bad guys. They were just men who got caught up with the wrong definition of greatness. Wrong definition. They went about trying to make their mark on the Christian society in the same way that the pagans try to make their mark on the secular culture. They were not thinking Christianly. They were thinking carnally. They were thinking, oh, as men. The beauty of Jesus is that He not only teaches us how to live as servants, but He demonstrates it as well, thus proving His point that the greatest people are the servants of all. You see, Jesus was more than a lowly carpenter's son. Unbeknown to the society around Him, Joseph was not Jesus' father at all. His identity was revealed to Mary before she conceived by Gabriel. We read the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born of you will be called the Son of God. Luke 1 verse 35. And Matthew's account tells us, that Joseph had no sexual relationships with Mary, his wife, until after the birth of Jesus, Matthew 1, verse 25. And in this way, her virginity remained intact and supported the truth that God's Spirit had miraculously fertilized Mary's ovum, making Jesus the Son of God, but not the Son of Joseph. And this truth is further supported in the Bible by the teaching on Jesus' pre-existence. That is, in another place, in another time, in another world, heaven's world. The Bible portrays Jesus as coming into our world or of being sent into our world. Let me read it for you from Hebrews. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for Me. Hebrews 10, verse 5. Or again, reading from Paul's writing, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman. Sent His Son, born of a woman born under the law, Galatians 4, verse 4. And Jesus' own testimony was this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Mark 10, verse 45. And Philippians 2 describes 
His coming in the most humbling of circumstances, and it applies us, it applies it to us to be likewise humble in serving others. Paul writes, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Well, what was his attitude? He goes on. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be hung on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a, 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 a servant. Ooh. Being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Yes, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, verses 4 through 6. And in all of this, let it not elude us as to just who Jesus is. He humbled himself, yes. He became a servant to mankind, yes. But he was, and he is, royalty in the highest order. He is the creator of, of the universe. Well, he didn't do that as Jesus the man, but he certainly did that as the second person of the Trinity. Let me read it for you. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Whoa. He is, now listen, he is before all things. Hmm. Before all things? It's a statement on his pre-existence, folks. He precedes things. Created things. He is before all things. He's independent of creation himself. And in Him, in Him, all things hold together. What's that mean? It means that He is the sustainer of the created order. He keeps the atoms from exploding and disintegrating. All things are held together. And, says Paul, He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So resurrection, the defeat of our last enemy, which is death. He's the one that accomplished that. So that, and here it is, purpose, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And I would just add the words, the supremacy he deserves. Colossians 1, 16 through 18. Now at his first coming, Jesus was in disguise. His glory, his glory was encased in flesh. It was concealed in his humanity. And this is why the Pharisees thought of him only as a child born of fornication. They had learned that Mary was with child before she married Joseph. And they concluded wrongly, here's one of these assumptions, they concluded wrongly that she had been unfaithful to Joseph. And that's why she was pregnant. 
They also concluded wrongly that Jesus had been born in Nazareth because Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. And so he could not possibly be God's promised Messiah who was prophesied by Micah of the Old Testament to be born in Bethlehem. You think their bias is showing through here? You think their assumptions are coloring the facts a little bit? A little less bias and a little more investigation would have revealed that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just as God's word had predicted that he would be. But like so many people in our day, they did not have time to discover the facts. Their mind was made up, and their mind was based on their own sinful assumptions. Start with error, your conclusions will be erroneous, because your assumptions will color the data. It is, however, very serious to misjudge God and to base your response to Him on misinformation. The Bible itself issues this caution. Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Here it is. God holds out His rest, His promise of salvation and rest. But you could fall short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Hebrews 4, verse 1 and 2. Simply put, they didn't believe it. And from Romans 8, they couldn't believe it. They had a heart that was already made up that mindset that was already made up. Unbelief when God speaks is a damning sin punishable by eternal judgment. Paul writes, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So as I'm preaching the gospel, it's incumbent upon you to obey, to believe, and so forth. And if you don't, in trouble. He goes on, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8 and 9. That's the just consequences of unbelief. Paul put it this way, let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you, Lord, may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Romans 3, verse 4. Now it's true. All men are liars, including me. But the Bible says of God, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. And it is the impeccable, flawless character of God that prevents him from telling lies or using deceptions to rule 
his majesty is unequaled. Peter writes, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 2 Peter 1, verse 16, you say, I thought you said that Jesus came in disguise and that his humanity hid his glory. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But remember, Peter, James, and John were taken up onto the mount. And for a few brief moments, Jesus Christ removed the cloak of his humanity and they saw him in all of his glory and majesty. And it says his clothing and his countenance was brighter than the lightning that strikes. Brighter than the whitest clothes. And then the veil was closed again. But they got a peek. And Peter says, I saw that. I was there. And I saw who he really was. I saw his majesty. At his return, at his return, there will be no cloaking of Jesus' glory. The scripture says they will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his called and chosen and faithful followers. Revelation 17, verse 14. Yet I say this one who is the creator, king of the universe could say to his disciples, for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Just think about that. The one that's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? He's the guest of honor, right? But I am among you as one who serves. Luke 22, verse 27. And it was on this very night that the creator of the universe stripped to a waistcoat, drew water in a basin, and kneeled down and one by one washed each of his disciples' feet because they were too consumed with greatness to perform the servant role of washing the street dirt from each other's feet. Feet washing was the role of a household slave. And that was too humiliating for students of the great rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. Those who were in the seminary of Rabbi Jesus. I'm not washing your feet. We have to preserve a, a bit of personal decorum here. We have to maintain a certain... Dignity and respectability. But their Lord and Master, well, he could wash dirty feet. And while Peter originally protested, we do not hear Peter say, Lord, please give me the towel, give me the basin, I'll finish. We don't hear that. Instead, he's perturbed with Jesus for doing such a humiliating exercise. 
Peter didn't get it. And I'm asking the question this morning, if we talk about fellowship and service, do we get it? Do we get it? In the fellowship of believers, instead of squabbling among ourselves for the preeminent positions of leadership in the church, we ought to be vying for latrine duty. for ministering to the sick and elderly, for teaching children where generally there are no accolades and no recognition. We ought not to expect that paid staff alone are responsible for service in the church. The world hires, yeah, that's true. The church depends on voluntary labor. And much of where we are called to serve will be in areas where we have no personal inclination to work. We will not want to do it. We will complain that we do not have the gifts of those areas. We will say, others are better suited than me. Let them. But the them are making the same excuses. It is that same mentality which allowed the disciples to sit there and watch as Jesus washed their dirty feet. Their pride would not let them serve one another. But that, brethren, is where God says, Greatness resides. Now in closing, let's consider facing some of the negatives of service. And the negatives of service ask this question. Can you handle being treated like a servant? I didn't ask if you, if you can handle serving. I'm asking something a little more intense. Can you handle being treated like a servant? That's our text, Luke 17, verse 7 and following in this account that Jesus gives. Because when you are a servant, you're going to confront this first negative, and that's the negative of inconsideration. Jesus portrays a servant whose task for the day has been plowing fields or tending sheep. He is tired. He is hungry. Likely he's dirty. He smells. He longs for a refreshing bath. But all of these things must wait. Oh, oh wait, wait. Why must it wait? Well, because the master of the estate says to him, prepare my supper Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Verse 8. How inconsiderate of the one in charge. Think about this. Can't he empathize with the servant and his tiredness, his pain, his discomfort? You know, the story is not about the master. The story is about the servant and what being a servant entails. 
And one thing it entails is the negative of inconsideration. That self-centered people will not take into consideration your tiredness, the fact that you are overworked, that you are understaffed, that you are ill-compensated for what you do, or physically impaired in some way that makes your service uncomfortable and trying. And we ask the question, why can't they say... We ask that question of others with whom we are in fellowship. Must I do more when others are doing little or nothing? How inconsiderate! Yes, and Jesus bore it all. You're going to be a servant. You're going to be treated in an inconsiderate way. And can you handle being a servant? Second negative, the negative of ingratitude. It's in our text as well. Many can handle the heartache of serving others if they, if they, know, if they know that their service is appreciated. But when this field hand comes in from his day's work, having performed his duties to the best of his ability, and then he is instructed to do more by serving his master dinner before eating and drinking himself, he can't even get himself cleaned up, insult is added to injury when Jesus asks, would he, the master, thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? And the implied his answer is this. Now, <laughs> He would not thank him because what he has done was his duty. It was an obligation of the servant role. Get to work, stop cranking and complaining. There is no thank you forthcoming to anyone who is a servant. The expectation of the landowner supersedes the courtesy of gratitude. You are my servant. You do what I say. This is your obligation. This is your duty. Get cracking. There's no thank you for fulfilling your responsibility. And in the church, our problem is that we see ourselves as volunteers and not as servants indebted to one another in the body of Christ with whom we are in fellowship. Now, if no thank you comes from the boss at work, we will chalk it up. Well, you know, I'm getting paid for this job. And we'll, we'll be pleased about that. But somehow, as a volunteer worker, we expect to be appreciated with thanks. And when it does not come, we become disgruntled and maybe back out of any future service. Well, <laughs> they didn't appreciate me the last time I did. And now they want me to do this? Well, they can just think. And that's the way we go. And I'm not saying we necessarily go through that sequence all the time, but there may be that rumbling. I was unappreciated the last time. I'm not doing any. 
And then lastly, we have the negative of self-deprecation. Okay, okay. So in our servant role, we have to face in consideration and we have to face in gratitude. We were asked to serve when we were already tired and worn out from other service. And no one seemed to be thankful for what we have done in the past. And now, now they want us to do more. And right, right at this very point, pride will step in that devil's common sin, his crowning sin. It will step in and assert, I don't care what others think. I know I did a good job in such and such. And if people cannot see this, that's their problem, not mine. What's going on? He said, well... <laughs> They won't pat me on the back. I'm going to pat me on the back because I know I did good. Pride. But Jesus will not permit us the wickedness of becoming little demons full of arrogance, pride, and self-congratulations. We are all part of the body of Christ and no member is more important than another. And no one gets a crown for being a servant to others. Jesus says in our text, when you have done everything you were told to do, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Brethren, faithfulness to Christ is its own reward. Let me say it again. Faithfulness to Christ is its own reward. But there is this final, and I think it's a final and it's a humiliating thought. Let me read it for you. It's from Luke 12. Jesus is speaking and he says this. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. That's just his way of saying, good for those servants who are doing their responsibilities and who are serving right up to his second coming. But it doesn't end there. The verse goes on. I tell you the truth, the master now. I tell you the truth. He, the master, will dress himself to serve Sounds almost like this John 13 waistcoat towel around the waist thing again. He'll dress himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and he will come and wait on them. And it'll be good for those servants whose master finds them ready even if he comes in the second or third watch. Of the night. Luke 12, verse 37 and 38. Now I say that's a humbling, humbling verse. And what does it tell us about Christ? It tells us this that being a servant for Christ now, being a servant was not simply a role that Jesus played in his humanity like an actor playing a part. No, it is part and parcel to the greatness of his majesty. 
that service to his creation, service to his people is part of his divine nature. It is who God is. And how humbling to the bride of men for all who can see Jesus in this light, this condescension, this outpouring of serving love. And then we're going to stand on our rights. And we're going to view service as being menial and beneath us. How sinful we are, folks. How sinful. He that is the greatest is servant of all. And Jesus says, that's me. That's me. And I ordain that for you, my people. It's the fellowship of service. Our Lord, thank you for your word. How precious, how humbling, how cutting. Ooh, it cuts us, Lord. It just, it tears us apart. I pray that we can handle, and by your grace we will be able to handle the responsibility of being a servant in light of the negative things that are associated with servanthood. May we look to you as our example. And I say to any unbeliever here this morning, how terrible for you to think of God in such negative terms when you see this condescension, this love that he had for his creation, that he would dare to come among us so that we might know God, so that we might be reconciled and brought back into a right and happy favor with God. And he might go to a cross and pay for the sins of his people. God, help us to see that. And help us to want this kind of Savior. For it's not over. The kingdom is yet to come. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when that's the case, we come under the loving apron, loving train of this great majesty on high. Just serve us, that he would serve us for all of eternity and treat us with such grace and outpouring of love. May we look at our sin in that light and see how heinous it is. Lord, grant to us this day the spirit of regeneration. Draw whom you will out of their sinful nature and biases and give them that new heart of which we spoke that today might be the first day of their new life in Christ. For the glory of Jesus, we pray.